Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Yes, we are now coming to the last section of Matthew. Uh, Some of you maybe thought it never would come, but it's here, lo and behold. For those of you who don't know, I think we began Matthew in late 2008, is that right? Somewhere in there. We've taken a lot of breaks, but it's been a wonderful journey. I've learned so much, and now we come here to the end. We are this morning going to take verses 16 through 18. I was going to try to do it all in one section, but thought it would be better to just take this first section, and then we'll finish it in two weeks. Pastor Bigelow will be preaching next week, and then we will uh, finish up the Gospel of Matthew. But open up this morning to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, a passage known to us as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. It is the sending off of the disciples by the Lord Jesus into the world to fulfill his mission in the world, the same mission that we have as the church. Let me begin by reminding you of a statement made in the 1800s by a German philosopher, a name that uh, you're familiar with, Friedrich Nietzsche. And he said this, or he famously wrote, that God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Now, Nietzsche recognized when he made that statement that it had consequences. In other words, the consequence, one, that he recognized that to not have a faith in God, to not recognize God, would create a moral vacuum, that it would create a a difficulty in having any kind of moral absolutes that a culture was to conform to. Nonetheless, he saw that as a reality that men needed to come to grips with and that they would then be allowed to have the freedom to grow and to fill that vacuum with their own wisdom and their own concoctions. In the 1966 cover of Time magazine, there was this question, Is God dead? And it featured an article on the death of God, and there was actually a death of God theological movement. In fancy terms, it was called theothanatology. That means God and death. So the death of God theology and the point was basically that the idea of god is no longer necessary in the world or in a culture it's, it only comes with baggage and it comes with no benefits there's other versions in our contemporary culture under the guise we mentioned some of them i think briefly last week of new atheism which is really just a militant form of evolution a militant form that is their philosophy that is their creed that is what they've put all their trust in that we are simply here by the product of chance that this material universe is all that there is there is no absolute morality that we conform to and on the other end of that because these things are true religion is the scourge of society and in fact is a danger to any culture and the cause of many of the atrocities that the world knows therefore religion must be eradicated The idea of faith is nonsensical and therefore must be removed. In fact, parents, they've even gone some so far to say, who would teach their children about God should either be disciplined, it should be a crime to do so. As a matter of fact, if some of you have seen it, is playing on some of those thoughts that the movie God's Not Dead came out. And so they're addressing the teaching of evolution in the classroom and atheistic evolution in the classroom and other issues that are a consequence of this faith and this kind of belief in our culture. Now, on the other end, there is a 
there is then a culture that is becoming more and increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, to the Christian faith truly proclaimed, rightly proclaimed, clearly proclaimed. But there is yet even another way that this more subtly works out, this idea that God is somehow either non-existent or He is not powerfully fulfilling His will in this world. And that can come even from those who give the label of Christianity. And some Christian leaders have even gone so far as to say that if the church doesn't adapt to culture, if it doesn't adapt to the new ways of our world, then the church will die out. In other words, the church will cease to exist. And so essentially that's saying that God must be dead because if he's not powerful enough to fulfill his word, then he must not exist at all, although they don't necessarily make those connections. Now, the point of all of this is merely to remind us that we live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. We live in a culture, we live in an environment that is hostile to the truth of God's saving work in Christ. And it comes in many forms, and some of these we have experienced, some of them you have experienced to different degrees. It can come in the form of physical persecution, it can come in the form of cultural kind of persecution, social persecution, many different ways that it can come. Intellectual persecution, in other words, the the shaming of those who claim to hold to the truthfulness of Scripture and God as He's proclaimed in it. So we as a church then have a message that confronts a world that is by nature, by spiritual nature, by birth, hostile to the gospel that is resistant and opposed to the message of Christ. And as Jesus told his brothers, he says, the world cannot hate you yet, he says, but the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. And that is essentially one of the functions of the church, to hold up what is righteous, and therefore in holding up what is righteous, it exposes what is unrighteous. And that then is the context in which the grace of God is proclaimed to the world. And though it is a message of grace, it is a message of mercy, it is a message of hope, it is a message of forgiveness that all need, it is a message that also confronts human pride and therefore is not met with open arms. We enjoy somewhat in our culture uh, a relief from that. We've enjoyed a certain dominance of Christian influence in our nation, but again, that is quickly uh, waning and we have no idea how long we will continue to enjoy those freedoms. And one can only imagine what the early church faced. We know some of it in the pages of Scripture, the mocking, intimidation, persecution, misrepresentation, and so on and so forth. And they did so without 2,000 years of church history to build on. They went out into a culture in which they were proclaiming the divine nature and necessary of repentance and faith in this Jewish rabbi who was crucified like a common criminal by the Roman government rejected by his own people. It was a strange message indeed. Not only did they claim that his death was the only way that all men could be saved and that he was, in fact, the creator of the world and the ruler of the world, but they claimed also that he was raised from the dead and that he is the eternal Son of God. You can uh, imagine the mockery and the, the strangeness at which that came to the ears of that first century generation, and yet that is the message on which Christ built his church. And so... 
Here in these last section of Matthew, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to them to give them encouragement and to remind them of the resource of power and glory that they have in him to be his faithful emissaries, his missionaries, as it were, in this world. And we need that same kind of confidence because we live in this world that is hostile to the truth, increasingly so, because we have all kind of challenges and difficulties in terms of living for Christ in this world, we need to hold on fastly to who Christ is and what our mission is. And he reminds us that in him, in Christ, we have every spiritual resource, every reason to have confidence that we are serving the winning team, in essence. That God wins, that Christ wins, and that that nothing can thwart his ultimate plan, and so we can have confidence in that. And so we'll look firstly at verses 16 through 18 this morning and notice the preparation that he gives his disciples and us for spiritual mission, uh, ministry, and then his affirmation of spiritual authority that we have to carry out that mission. So before we look at those verses, read with me verses 16 through 20 of Matthew chapter 28. Beginning in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Really an amazing, amazing passage. And there's, of course, so much there. But let's look firstly at verses 16 through 17 and the preparation that he gives to his disciples and to us for spiritual ministry, the spiritual ministry that he has called them to. He says in verse 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now at this point, Matthew has left off a theme that he's been carrying through so far, which is named really at the beginning of chapter 28, namely the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. There was the witness of the angel, the witness of the women, ultimately even the witness of Pilate, the witness of the soldiers, and so on and so forth. Now he's leaving that theme and he's focusing more on the results of the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection to the person of Christ and to us who are his people. And it is incredible, incredible encouragement. These disciples are now coming to understand with greater clarity and with greater fullness all the reasons why Jesus called them out to walk with him for three years during his earthly ministry to witness his life in every detail, to have the privilege of receiving special teaching and explanation of his miracles and his parables and other aspects of his ministry and his life. They are special witnesses to his death, special witnesses to his resurrection and to his ascension. They're realizing that And they will come to realize that the purpose of all of that was not just to have a lot of really cool experiences and be on the in crowd, but specifically that God was calling them out to be a specially appointed emissaries to the world to proclaim the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. 
is on the foundation of that proclamation that we're here and that the church was formed as we've been reading about in Acts. They were his chosen instruments to establish the new covenant doctrine for the church. And it is on that doctrine that we stand and that Christ is building his church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they then, in some ways, also represent the church. The proclamation that began with them is the proclamation that through them is continued on by all of God's people. And we have the same resources. We have the same resources. Notice what he says here at the beginning of verse 16, that it's the 11 disciples. This is a unique way to refer to them. No longer, of course, the 12. That's minus Judas Iscariot, who Matthew has already informed us was a false disciple who had walked with Jesus but ended up betraying him and handing him over to the Jewish authorities and to the Roman government. These then are the remaining 11 disciples, the faithful ones, the ones who have remained with Jesus to the end, though they faltered, of course, when they went and hid and deserted him in the garden. Here they are gathered to him again as the risen Lord, present to receive instructions from him for their mission to the world. Now, some argue that it's actually a much larger group here than the 11 disciples, and most certainly it does include more than just the 11 some think that it actually includes the 500 in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 that Jesus appeared to and that they're all gathered there. The 500 that he appeared to at one time, Paul tells us, the women who are surrounding Jesus and his ministry, as well as the 11 disciples. It's really impossible to be exact on some of those details. The text simply doesn't tell us. But it is most certainly or most likely that it includes more than only the 11, that there are some others there. But again... It's not possible to be absolutely certain. And Matthew's concerned here is to focus on this meeting with the eleven, particularly because, again, they are the ones who are going to be commissioned by him to go out into the world to be his representatives, to be the ones who, declare, who begin the proclamation of salvation in his name. Now, Matthew, of course, is summarizing a lot of other events. If we compare with the other gospel writers and the book of Acts, we understand that before this meeting took place, Jesus has actually already appeared to them several times. You'll remember that now they are coming to Galilee where he is meeting them, but they were originally in Jerusalem where he first appeared to them. Luke 24 records that he appeared to two disciples that were walking along the road. John 20 tells us that he appeared to 10 of the disciples at once, minus Thomas. And then later he appeared to them again with Thomas. And then again in John 21, he appeared to seven of the disciples who followed Peter and when they returned to fishing. And as was mentioned earlier, at some point, according to 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared specifically to Peter. He appeared to James, his half-brother, and he appeared to over 500 at once. And then Paul says, even later than that, of course, after these events, he appeared to him as one untimely born. So this is not the only appearance, it's not the first appearance of Jesus to his disciples, but it is the one that Matthew is focusing on because of his purpose, again, in showing how his people or his disciples here are prepared to be his emissaries, and therefore how we as well are prepared to be his emissaries in this world. 
Uh, let me mention that in Acts 1-3 informs us that he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So again, there, there's many other times that he appeared to them, many other ways that he authenticated his resurrection, many other ways that he strengthened their faith, but Matthew is condensing that here to make a very special point. And so they have left here Jerusalem. They have left their hiding in Jerusalem as they were hiding in fear of the Jews. They have come out together and they have come to meet the Lord to receive instructions to him. They have come in obedience to him. They have made themselves available to him. And they have come again to receive his command. Now why Galilee? And this is really one of the points I just want to highlight here briefly. Why Galilee? Of all of the places, why not Jerusalem? In fact, Jerusalem is where it would begin. The gospel would go out from Jerusalem and go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other, other ends of the earth. Why not Jerusalem? Why Galilee? Well, there's probably a few reasons that he met them in Galilee. One is just to get them out of Jerusalem. Remember, there was still this fever pitch. They still had fear of the Jews, as John mentioned in John chapter 20. They were, had just crucified Jesus. They were a little nervous to be around this same crowd. And so it was a way to get them out of Jerusalem, to give them a little uh, comfort, a little ease, and not so much fear. And, and you see, even in those kind of details, the kindness of the Lord. He knew the condition and the environment they needed to be in to receive these instructions. And so he takes them out of that, and he takes them to Galilee. Galilee was also a significant part of his ministry and even many of the women who were following him, Matthew tells us, were actually following him from Galilee. A significant part of Jesus' ministry actually took place in Galilee and so there would have been other disciples there, there would have been those who were friendly to him, maybe again some were with them on this mountain hearing these instructions that he gave to uh, his disciples So Galilee was a significant part of his ministry, but probably one of the primary reasons, I think, that he meets them in Galilee has as much to do with the symbolism of Galilee, the symbolism of Galilee. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 4, let me note this to you, when in Matthew Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, he says this, Matthew does, quoting from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, He says this, that his ministry there and what he did in Galilee, he said, was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The peoples who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of shadow of death, upon them light dawned. And it's from there that Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And why that is a symbolism there for Jesus to be here in Galilee, I think it uh, it is in this way, it is because Galilee in a way represents that the gospel ministry is now going to the Gentile nations. That's... That's the point of verse 19 with this is now a message of the risen Christ. He says that they were are to go out and to make disciples of all of the nations. It symbolizes the reality here that God is no longer working primarily through the Jews, the Jewish nation. But now there is a new era. There is the new covenant. There is the new way that God is 
calling men to himself, and it's not through a nation, it is through Christ and Christ alone and the proclamation of his name. And in a unique way, Galilee represents that. It represents this new message, this new calling of all men to Christ in whom men can be saved, in whom there is the knowledge of salvation and the worship of God. No longer a specific location. As a matter of fact, in some ways, that reflects what Jesus told the woman, the Samaritan woman, neither here nor in Jerusalem will men worship in this coming day. But the Father seeks true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And in a unique way, Galilee represents this reality to us and to these disciples. But notice as well the spiritual condition of them. So he's preparing them spiritually for this message in part, even by the very location in which he meets them. And secondly, he shows the spiritual condition of these people, these disciples and of us in verse 17. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some were doubtful. And this is really a fascinating and a wonderful note that emphasizes several things, but one of which is that there was at the same time, a growing and robust faith among the followers of Jesus, but there was also a struggle in the hearts of some. Note first, though, that their response when they saw him, this is the resurrected Lord, that they worshipped. They worshipped. You remember that was the first response of the ladies, the women, when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection, while they were on their way to go tell the disciples about the resurrection, they saw him and they worshipped. They grabbed on to his feet. Mary Magdalene did the same thing in John chapter 20. It is a response of worship that filled their hearts when they first saw the risen Christ or here when they saw him uniquely again as he was going to commission them to fulfill his purpose in this world, their hearts were overwhelmed and they worshipped him. It's the immediate response to the risen Christ. And it's important that Matthew makes that note. He's not making that offhandedly simply as a point of interest. He is establishing even here right at the beginning that those who have truly come to know Christ, those who have truly come to realize his person and his divine glory are those who worship him, worship him. Worship is of the essence of spiritual life. There is no spiritual life where there is not love for Christ. There's no spiritual life where there is not a desire to worship him and where there is not a finding a unique delight in the worship of Christ. And in the context here, we could add to that that there is no power to serve him in this world unless it flows out of a heart that worships him, out of a heart that understands his divine glory, out of a heart that delights in that glory. Your witness will be weak. My witness will be weak. Our service to him in this world will be weak. If we do not have a heart that is robust and growing in worship, you want to be useful to Christ in this world, be a better worshiper of Christ, a better lover of Christ, understand his glory more and more. And here, that's what they were doing. They were coming to understand that glory more and more. And and even though this wasn't the first time that they saw him, yet when they saw him, Matthew tells us that they worshiped, that they worshiped. 
And there's more to this. Not only is that the right heart of a disciple. Again, John told the woman at the well that God seeks those who worship in spirit, who worship in spirit and truth. But notice what Jesus does. What does he do when they worship? He receives it, right? He receives this worship. It is the right response of a disciple, and it is right that Jesus would be the one worshipped. This is an implicit testimony to the deity of Christ. If you'll remember John, I was thinking of John when this happened, the the Apostle John in Revelation. Two times in Revelation 19 and 22, there was this angel who was showing him around, this angel who was the messenger of Christ, and he was showing him all of these glories of the judgment that's to come, of the new heavens and the new earth. And in John, uh, Revelation 19, it says this, that, that John fell down at the feet of the angel to worship him. He was just overwhelmed, really. He's just overwhelmed, probably similar to how Peter felt when they woke up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw the Lord there with Moses and Elijah and he wanted to build three tabernacles, just kind of overwhelmed with it. And so John was just overwhelmed with the glory of this angelic being and everything that he was showing and he fell down to worship. And what was the angel's response? No doubt a very glorious angel. The angel's response was this, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. To do anything else would be blasphemy, right? It would be, it would be worthy of judgment. He says, worship God. Later, after he saw the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 22, John fell down again to worship at the feet of the angel. And the angel said again, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Here, these disciples fall down and they worship Jesus. And it's right to do so because he is the divine son of God. He is receiving here the honor of deity, which is to be worshipped, to be adored, to be praised, to be trusted, to be loved, to be followed, to be obeyed. He receives what it is right for God alone to receive. In the same way that he received the proclamation of Thomas, who said, My Lord and my God, when his eyes were opened to understand in that moment the reality of who Christ was... And Jesus did not rebuke him. He did not say to like the angel, don't do that. I'm just a created being. Worship God. He receives it. He receives that worship because it is right for him to do so. It's right for him to do so. So this is the right response. It's where all creation is heading. It is the necessary condition of our hearts if we're to be useful to Him and serve Him in this world. And it's the natural and necessary response of the regenerate heart to the person of Christ, to worship and to adore Him, to see Him as He really is. That's the nature of regeneration, is to see God and to see Christ as He truly is, as the Son of God, as the Redeemer, as the Ruler, and as King. And the right response to see Christ as He is, is to worship Him. Have we seen Christ as He truly is in our hearts? Is the response of our hearts to the knowledge of Christ to worship Him? Is as the knowledge of Christ is growing in your mind, is it also your affections growing for Him in your heart? 
It's how it was with these disciples. It's how it must be for us. And especially, again, if we're to be effective servants for Him in this world. And the greater your knowledge of Christ, which is not merely intellectual knowledge, but spiritual knowledge, the greater then will be your worshipers. That's who God will use in this age. And that's what is being established here, that they, they saw Him and they worshipped Him. And worship was the touchstone of their life with Him and of their ministry and, and as it should be with ours. But notice this, this very interesting statement that he says next. He says in the second part of verse 17. What does he say there? He says, but some were doubtful. But some were doubtful. That's a very, very interesting note that he makes here. Who, who does he include? Who are the sum? Is the sum all of the 11 disciples? Is the sum a group out of the 11 disciples? Is the sum some of the other people who were around the 11 disciples? Are the ones who doubted the same ones who just worshipped? Were they from that group? Well, it's really, again, hard here to be precise and exact. It's just Matthew doesn't tell us, and that's really not his main point. It's very likely that it was some of those who also had worshipped him were also, from, some from among them, were also dealing with doubt. And there's a certain paradox here. But first of all, in order to understand this, we have to get a grasp here of what does Matthew mean by the fact that they doubted? What does he mean by the fact that they doubted? Well, he clarifies that for us in this way. He uses this term only one other time he does in the gospel. And actually, it's in chapter 14, verse 31. You don't have to go there. But in chapter 14, verse 31, is if you'll remember, the disciples were on the sea. They were crossing in the night uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A great storm came. It put them in a terrible fright. They were scared for their lives. They feared for their lives. As they were battling the storm, they looked off and they saw what they thought at first and out of their fear they spoke, a ghost going across the Lake of Galilee. Jesus says, no, it's I, don't be afraid. Peter, in a moment of bold faith and confidence and trust in God, he cried out to this figure out on the water and he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Jesus told him to come to him. So he gets out of the boat. He begins walking on the water and then you remember the rest of the story, right? What happens? He realizes that what he's doing is actually impossible. You don't walk on water, right? And so what happens? He, he realizes, he notices the storm around him. He notices what he's doing. And he begins to sink in the water. And he cries out to Jesus for help. Jesus in mercy reaches down his hand, pulls him up out of the water. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Same word. Same word. So what does he mean here to say that they doubted? What he's saying here is that, essentially, though they had seen the risen Christ, though they had become convinced of His resurrection, there were still, in some, seeds of struggle and little faith that was growing and becoming more confident in this great reality, but they weren't all the way there yet. In other words, it's really a picture here of little faith, faith. It's genuine faith. He's not saying some there weren't believers. He's not saying some there weren't actually Christians, that it, they were like Judas's. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that among God's people, there is the reality of worship, but sometimes there is still the reality 
of struggle as well. These were momentous and stupendous realities, and coming to grip with it was difficult for some. It was difficult. So it was belief, but it was belief tinged with doubt. And this is the paradox of the human heart and even of the Christian's heart and of the regenerate heart. And we know this. Your heart can be filled with different emotions all at the same time, can't it? And particularly Christians in a unique way understand this. There is a joy and a confidence of God, but it doesn't mean we don't feel in our heart the discouragements and the difficulties of life, the sadness of the things around us that we see that grip our hearts. Those are two different emotions. We can have fear and confidence all at the same time. And in some strange way, we can have belief in Christ and yet struggle with areas of doctrine and trust at the same time. It's kind of like the mountain. If you're a Christian, you can identify with this truth. Remember when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration? The disciples couldn't heal the man's son who was afflicted by a, a wicked and evil spirit. The disciples couldn't cast it out. And Jesus said, do you believe? And what did the man say? I believe, help my unbelief. There was a sense in which both resided in his heart at the same time. And there's a real sense where we as Christians can have that all at the same time. There's faith, and yet we can have little faith. There's genuine trust in Christ as Savior, and yet there's areas of unbelief that are still progressively being conquered in our heart as we come to trust him more fully, more completely, understand him more robustly. There could be areas of a particular doctrine. For example, for many people, it's the doctrine of election, understanding the sovereignty of God and salvation. They trust Christ. They have a genuine trust in Him. But there's some points when first confronted with it, if they haven't yet come to understand and see uh, the glory of God and sovereignly calling His elect home, that they can struggle with that. They can wrestle with that. It's not that they're not a believer, it's that they're coming to terms with some difficult things. And it's kind of, in a way, that idea here. They worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. They had little faith. And so Jesus displays here such tremendous, tremendous compassion. Such patience to them. It doesn't record any rebuke. There are in other places. As a matter of fact, when he talked to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember what he said to them? Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets and so on have said to you that God's word has proclaimed. But what did he do then? He walked with them. He taught them. He revealed himself to them. And then they came to a place of fuller faith. And they came to a place of joy. And this is the compassion of Jesus, how he treats them. A broken reed, he will not break. He will not break. We, in the same way, need to be patient with those who are doubting, those who are struggling, those who are weak in faith. And this is what Jesus does to them. It's what he does with us, is it not? Is God not tender towards you and your weakness? Is God not long-suffering with you and patient with you as you might come to understand him more fully and stumble badly at times along the way. 
This is also hinted at, just and we're going to move on, but this is hinted at actually in Acts chapter 1, 4. Again, where it says that he appeared to them for 40 days with many convincing proofs. Why would he need to do that? Why would he need to do that for 40 days? Why not just one time wipe his hands, get, get it over with and go back and ascend to the Father? It's because he needed to well establish the reality of his person. And he knew that doubts would arise in their hearts. He knew that when things heated up against them, that they would lose confidence. He knew that questions would arise in their hearts. And so he wanted to establish with absolute certainty who he was and who he is for their confidence. And really, beloved, that's what all of Scripture does for us. You want to have confidence in God, you need to know him and see how he's given us that confidence where he's revealed in his word. If you know Scripture, and if you study Scripture and read Scripture, you will gain that confidence so that when difficulties arise, you will have the confidence in the God who's revealed Himself there. So when doubt arises in your heart, you will have light shined by the Holy Spirit through the truth of His Word. And so it's very important then that we become students of His Word. That is how God alleviates the doubt in our heart. By teaching us more of who he is. Helping us to walk with him. If you act in faith and trust in God, that will help alleviate the doubts. You will have confidence. Jesus put it this way in John that that the one who does his will will know whether his word is true. Essentially whether he is from the Father. Obedience is a way to grow in confidence. Well, let me move on. There's some more that I wanted to say there. But let's move on to this last point. I'm going to get to verse 18. Verse 18. So first there is the preparation for spiritual ministry. He prepared them by reminding them that their mission is to the world. He'll say that distinctly, but even their meeting in Galilee. He's reminding them that this is now a proclamation that's not limited to a place, namely Jerusalem and the temple, but it is a message that's going out to the world. It's a message that goes out to every tribe, nation, and tongue, every color of skin, every uh, strata of culture, and so on. It is a message that goes to all men, and Galilee represents that. He prepared them by showing that true servants in this world, his true children are those who worship him, who worship him in spirit and in truth. And he also tenderly reminds us that that can be a struggle at times, but he is patient to suffer long with his children. And now he comes and he answers that doubt really here by affirming his absolute authority. Look at verse 18 and let's note the affirmation of Jesus' spiritual authority. The affirmation of his spiritual authority. Some doubted and what did Jesus do? He came up and he spoke to them. And again, there's just so many tender little clues here of God with his children. Again, he doesn't abandon them. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't chastise them. He approaches them. He goes to them, even those who are in their doubt, and he encourages them. And what does he say here in verse 18? He says, he came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Again, this is an astounding statement. Astounding statement. What does he mean by it? Well, that term authority, first of all, it can have different nuances, as most terms do, depending on the context. But 
think the basic idea of the term here that's translated authority is the ability to perform a task. And that has all kinds of implications, but it's the ability to perform a task. It has the implication also of power, power. The ability to perform the task of ruling means that you have the power to rule and uphold your rule. Here it is his ability to rule over all things. He has absolute authority. The idea is this, that Christ has absolute power over all creation, spiritual and physical, that gives him the ability to rule and accomplish his desire without the least threat of any other created thing. His authority is all authority. His authority is unchallenged. He is unconcerned by all that opposes him. All of the amassed angelic and human world could stand against Christ and he would have not the least bit of threat in his heart. That's the idea. All authority resides in him who is Lord of heaven and earth. It is an unchallenged authority. Now, why did he tell them and why does he tell us this? Well, first of all, because... There are some who are doubtful. There are some who have little faith, who need to understand the full authority and power and glory of Christ as they go to serve him in this world. We need to understand that. Again, he knows the challenges that they would face and he knows the challenges that we face by being faithful to him in this world. He knows the doubts, again, that will come into the heart. He knows that his rule over his church, from our perspective, is filled with many perplexing providences. Things that we simply do not understand why it goes the way that it does. Why God allows the things that he permits. Why does God do the things that he's doing? Why does he work in this area and not in this area? Why is this part of the church weak? Why is the other part strong? Why is false doctrine in some places allowed to go on? There's many perplexing providences. There's many parts of the working out of the divine and eternal wisdom of God in our experience that is inexplicable to us. We can't always understand it. But when we come to this verse... And we hear the words of the Lord saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. We can, in the midst of our perplexity, in the midst of doubts, in the midst of sometimes uncertainty and confusion, have absolute confidence that his will is being accomplished. His wise will, his perfect will is being accomplished. Now let me just note a few things here about the statement then. First of all, it's designed for our encouragement and it does that in this way. It reminds us of the Trinitarian glory of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of his Trinitarian glory. In other words, that he is the eternal Son of God, co-equal in power and glory and honor with the Father as ruler over all things. This is what he says, all authority in heaven and on earth. This is actually a statement that indicates his divine glory. His divine glory as God. It is a glory that he has, and it is a right that he has to receive this authority as the creator of all things. He is the one, creation was planned by the Father, by your will, all things existed, John says in 
Revelation 5 or 4. It is through Jesus Christ that the world, the heavens and the earth, spiritual and physical, came into being. Colossians 1 reminds us of that. John 1 tells us that it is through Christ that all things have come into being. And apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. In other words, He has the right to this authority inherent to His nature as the eternal Son of God. He created all things. He has the right to rule over all things. He also has this authority as the God-man who is the Redeemer of all things. That's Colossians 1. It is His glory as the Creator. It is His glory as the incarnate Son of God who is also Redeemer to rule over creation. And He does so as one who is divine. Who is divine. Verse 19 of Colossians 1 says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness that is the fullness of deity, to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, things on earth or things in heaven. So then He has this right as the eternal Son of God to rule over creation as both Creator and as Redeemer. To say that He has all authority is also to say that he has all authority that he shares with the Father and it's authority that comes from the Father. Listen to this. He says in John 3, 31, you can listen or try to follow along. I'm just going to give you a few examples here. He says in John 3, 31, he says this. Uh, John the Baptist says of Jesus that that he who is of the earth or from the earth and speaks of the earth, but he who comes from heaven, here he's speaking of Jesus, he who comes from heaven is above all. He says in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. All things into his hand. In chapter 5, he says that he received from the Father... In verse 21, the Father raises the dead, gives him life. Even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Not even the Father judges everyone. He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He says later in this, in verse 26 of John 5, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. Listen, Verse 27, he, and gave, he gave him all authority or authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Christ then shares with the Father life. He shares with the Father all authority. He shares with the Father all glory as the Son of God, as the Son of Man. He shares with the Father all divine prerogatives. He says this in verse chapter 17. Listen to this. We'll come back to that later, but listen. He says in his prayer to the Father, now Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He says this in verse 10, all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified 
in them. In other words, everything that belongs to the Father, Christ shares with him. That is not the language of a created being. It is the language of one who is God. He says in chapter verse 27 of chapter 11 of Matthew, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so the encouragement here then is for them to saying, All authority rests in me, not as a created being, but as the eternal Son of God, equal to the Father in divine authority that I share with Him to rule over all things. Here to rule over His kingdom, to rule over heaven and earth, to rule over His people. And just as a note, Jesus has already displayed this authority throughout His ministry, hasn't He? He healed the sick. He raised the dead, Lazarus. He cast out demons with a word. He spoke and taught with authority as one who spoke with the authority of God and He humbled all of them. So what's the difference about this authority? Is it something different? Is it a different kind of authority that He has here? And the answer is no. The authority that He had throughout the Gospels was to remind us that He is, in fact, the Lord. It was to bear testimony that He is, in fact, the Son of God. The fact that was simply verified and authenticated and affirmed for the world through the resurrection. What is different about His authority here then? The difference is essentially this. That when Jesus walked on the earth, though He displayed the reality of His divine nature... And his purpose as the Son of God in flesh, the Messiah, by a display of his authority, he yielded that authority. He didn't use it in its full exercise. In fact, he submitted himself to human authority, to lesser authority that, in fact, ultimately was an authority that he gave and that the Father gave. Remember, he told Pilate in John 19... You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above, from his father. The authority, even that was used, humanly speaking, to crucify Christ, was an authority that he submitted to. So even though as the Son of God, as the Messiah, he had all authority, he didn't, ha- he didn't use it as he does now and as he will in the future. As the God-man, he receives here as the exalted Christ all authority and full exercise of that authority. In other words, Christ will no longer again submit to a human institution. He rules over it for his own divine glory. Now, let's just consider that just briefly. He says, all authority has been given to me In heaven and on earth. In heaven and on earth. In heaven, all authority has been given to him. Why would that be encouraging? This is a reference here to all of the spiritual realm. He has authority over the whole spiritual realm. That means every holy angel has his order from Christ and yields to his rule. Every fallen angel and Satan himself can do no more than what Christ ordains. As the reformers famously said, the devil is God's devil. It's God's devil. He rules over him. He does no more than what 
he allows him to do and ultimately to accomplish his purpose. Why is that encouraging to us? Well, Paul warns us that there is the doctrine of demons. That there is demonic activity under the influence of Satan himself, not only in the world, but to infiltrate the church, to destroy the church through sin and error. That Satan is active to destroy the work of Christ. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the work of Christ. Peter tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan would love nothing more if you are a Christian than to devour you, to destroy you, to bring sin and error into your life and to cause you to defame the name of Christ. That's what he wants to do. You have an adversary that is stronger than you. John says that Satan is the God of this world. Paul says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In another place, he says the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of forces, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Why is that important for us to understand? Because it means that every spiritual entity in the universe submits to the rule and the authority of Christ. Some come out of a charismatic background in a fear of what is sometimes known as the sovereignty of Satan. They're always trying to get out of what Satan is trying to do to them. They live in fear of Satan's activity in their life. They need to understand this verse that all authority resides in Christ. He is the one that even the devil himself submits to. And whatever Satan is allowed to do and whatever damage he is allowed to do in the church and harm he is allowed to bring to God's people, it is fully under the authority of Christ. We have absolute confidence. We fear no spiritual adversary as the church of Jesus Christ. None. None. We are under the authority and under the direction and under the lordship and under the kingship of him who is the king of king and lord of all. He has all authority in heaven. It resides in Christ alone. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be fearful of Satan. We don't need to be fearful of demons. We don't need to be fearful of any spiritual malady in as much as we obey and we trust and are faithful to Christ. It's also all authority on earth. And this is really a reference to earthly powers. Romans 13.1 says, There is no authority except that which comes from God. That's the, the principle that Jesus also told to Pilate when he was submitting to that authority to be crucified according to the plan of God. The Old Testament is replete with these direct accounts of how God raises up rulers and he casts them down. Nebuchadnezzar himself, the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, the greatest empire, earthly empire and kingdom of the world at that time in Daniel 4, gives testimony to God as being the ruler of all, the God of Israel. And when the earthly rulers act against God's people and purposes, they do so again with the authority that God gives them. Why is this an encouragement? It's obvious. It means then that ultimately, not only do we not have a misplaced hope, that's one part, that we don't put our hope in an earthly government, we don't put our hope in politics, that's something that's clear, we've talked about that in the past, it was tried and it failed miserably, because it is a spiritual 
kingdom that Christ is building now, his kingdom physical will be established in the future, but now it is a spiritual kingdom that he is building through the proclamation of his name. So it means that we don't wrongly put our hope in human authorities and in human government as if that's going to be our salvation and that's going to be how God works his purposes. Let me tell you, a human government can turn in a second. What can be for the good of the church can in one generation be aimed at the destruction of the church. We don't put our hope in a government. But this word then... Remember, he's speaking this to people who would soon feel the wrath of not only their own nation, but the wrath of Rome against them. And they needed to be reminded of this. You can read Voice of the Martyrs. I was just skimming through some stories earlier. And you realize that there are governments who do not allow the freedoms that we enjoy. And yet God's people are there. They're flourishing and they have confidence in what? They have confidence in Matthew 28, 18 of Christ saying that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and I have authority to fulfill my word to accomplish my purpose and no government or human lord or king will ever thwart that. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's also a statement then of the absolute success of the gospel. Absolute success of the gospel. Now I want to We'll pick it up there next week. But I want to remind us at least with this. The fact that Christ has all authority on heaven and earth means that when he gave that promise to Peter that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it, that that is a promise that he has all authority to fulfill. If somebody gives a promise but they're weak and they're impotent in power then the promise doesn't mean that much. But in Christ, in whom all power and authority and glory resides, when he gives that promise, it means that it will be fulfilled. Now, we know that globally, but I will tell you personally, I find much comfort in that when I think of Newtown Bible Church, when I think of this area, as you might think of the gospel in your family and in your workplace and other places. There are so many things that are perplexing providences to me and to you that I don't understand. But I do understand this, that God's will and God's purposes are never in the least, slightest, smallest way hindered if he desires to accomplish it. God could fill these pews with standing room only tomorrow, next week if he chose to do that. He could keep us small and always trying to serve him in a culture that is not interested in the gospel. But he has all divine authority to do that. So if we look at sometimes and we see that our plans are not brought to the fruition that we desire, we know always that Christ's plans are and we yield to him as Lord. And we go, okay, Lord, this is what I desire. This is what I've asked for. But you know what you're doing. And what you are doing, inasmuch as we are seeking to be faithful to him, is perfectly wise and fits perfectly into his divine plan to build his church, over which all of the gates of hell, no spiritual power in heaven, no spiritual or no power on earth can thwart, because he has all authority. That is, to me, extremely comforting to my soul. Extremely comforting to my soul. And so it would be to these disciples, so it should be to you, and so it is to Christ's church throughout the world now. We have full confidence. 
complete trust, total reliance on Him who is Lord of heaven and of earth. Well, we're going to pick it up there two ways, uh, in two weeks, and that establishes the foundation of His command and our mission as the church in this world, which is to make disciples of all of the nations. Let me pray, and then we'll have a closing verse of a hymn. Father, we thank you for your word. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the word that you gave to your disciples and that you have, through the written word, even through those same disciples, given to us. Help us to lay hold of the glorious reality of your person. Help us to remember that your plan is to build your church from every tribe, nation, and tongue in this world and that you will accomplish it. This is our confidence as we go forth in ministry. This is our confidence as we go forth from here into our families, into our workplaces, into our community, that you are, through your servants, through the proclamation of your name, building your church, and nothing will stand against it. Help us to have full rest and trust and confidence in you. Help us to, with eyes of faith, to worship and see beyond this world, to gaze on the things which are not seen and to draw confidence and comfort from you who are at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning as we await your return. We pray that you may find us faithful when you do. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the promises you give and for your spirit who awakens them in our hearts. It's in your matchless name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.